Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Tuesday, November 29th. We begin with our weekly conversation with Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. Mercedes brings us details of her interview with Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie on Canada's long-awaited Indo-Pacific strategy and how it could impact our relationship with China moving forward. It's been a brutal flu season and children are being hit hardest this year. Why is this year's virus so prevalent among kids and how is our healthcare system keeping up with the high traffic in hospitals with the flu, RSV and COVID cases? We discuss with Dr. Cora Constantinescu, pediatric infectious disease specialist from the Alberta Children's Hospital. It's Giving Tuesday. We learn all about the great work the Kids Cancer Care Program does right here in the city and tell you how you can triple your donation dollars by supporting this valuable organization. And finally, the weather is downright chilly these days. And if you've been struggling to keep warm, don't worry. Help is on the way. We catch up with the gadget guy, Mike Yanni, for the latest tech solutions to keep warm during the cold winter months ahead, from heated coats and hand warmers to a toasty toilet seat. When it comes to foreign interference in general, I think we have to do more to counter it because we need to step up our game. We need to invest in intelligence agencies and also in the RCMP. That was a bit of the conversation between Mercedes Stevenson and Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie on the latest episode of The West Block. Host and Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief Mercedes Stevenson joins us now with some insight into the long-awaited Indo-Pacific strategy. Hi, Mercedes. Hey, how are you guys? Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us. Let's get right into it. And what can you tell us about Canada's new Indo-Pacific strategy? What exactly is it? Well, this is basically a strategy to deal with one of the most economically prosperous and promising regions of the world, but also one of the most difficult ones to deal with when it comes to security, uh, namely because of China. And so this has been long in coming. The government has been promising it, saying that we've got to take a very deliberate tack in how we handle China, India, Cambodia, Vietnam, all of these countries that are um, emerging, like Vietnam and Cambodia, really, and then the super powerhouses like uh, China and India. And we're talking about countries here that have nuclear weapons, that have massive economies um, and absolutely huge populations. So what this uh, strategy basically does is lay down some foundations. And sort of the key takeaways, I think, for your listeners, is that it's clear the government uh, seems to have learned its lesson about China. It's a much tougher tone they're taking. They're acknowledging we still have to do business with China. I mean, take a look around your house and your kitchen. You'll see how many goods are made there. Uh, but that this is not necessarily a friendly power. This is a power uh, that is trying to disrupt Canada, trying to at times allegedly disrupt Canadian democracy, harass Canadian citizens uh, who are living here, trying to at times, uh, according to one report, deport uh, essentially coercively Chinese citizens who are dissidents that are in Canada. So the government is recognizing some real concerns about that. Um, they're also also talking about getting a little bit closer to India but what stood out to me is uh, a lot of folks were looking to see if they would announce like something much tighter with India that's not the case and keep in mind that the Trudeau government does not have a lot of fans in the Modi government if you remember uh, Justin Trudeau's infamous trip to India sort of the echoes of that are still happening and you can see it in the Indo-Pacific strategy in that they're not getting closer to India or as, as close as they could um, there's a lot of spending it's sort of scattershot it's 2.2 billion they say it's new spending um, but they can't really explain exactly where it's coming from there's a lot of promises about bigger and more military exercises 
That's really interesting because right now we are struggling to maintain one ship, there's not one, by the way, on Operation Reassurance to deter Russia, and one in the Pacific. So there's some serious questions about where the money is going to come from mm-hmm. to back all of this up. And, of course, the big question mark, too, is how this all plays into the Arctic, because the northern Pacific is the Arctic, and we know that that's an area that, in particular, China has an interest in. Do we, we know how we got here. You know, the incident with Huawei and, of course, the, the two Michaels, and it just seemed to continue this, again, rocky road on our relationship with China. Uh, so are we looking at just purely having an economic relationship with the country? Is, is that the best course of action, Mercedes, from what you're hearing? I mean, they're acknowledging there there has to be a political relationship too, and the way that the economy works in China, there there is no economic relationship without some kind of a political relationship. This is a superpower; uh, it's reality. We may not like it, but it exists, and, and we do have to deal with it. But what they're saying is really that they're going to limit those dealings to when they kind of absolutely have to, and that they're going to undertake that cautiously. They're also talking about investing in the RCMP and CSIS, uh, which I found interesting here because. Because they are concerned about that interference. So part of the Asia-Pacific strategy is not just trade and investment um, and trying to build sort of roads and things to compete with what China's doing. And by the way, we can't compete on the same level as what China is building in many of these countries to kind of uh, owe favors uh, among governments. But there is a recognition um, that there has to be engagement, but it's kind of like hold your nose and engage because we have to versus let's send a bunch of, uh, you know, business missions into China and try to improve relations. Mercedes, I know we have to let you go a little bit early this morning, but before that, I just wanted to change tacks a little bit and ask you with the Emergencies Act inquiry wrapping up. I know we don't get the results for a little bit, but, you know, do you think there'll be a lasting impact as a result of the commission and looking into this? You know, it's it sort of hasn't had the mark that people thought that it might, and it is still ongoing. It's just not high-profile people. They're now looking at the policy side of exactly what happens okay. with the act and, and what the law says about it. Um, but for Justin Trudeau, you know, he came out of it relatively unscathed. A lot of people are still very angry with him for invoking the Emergencies Act, but there was a lot of testimony from intelligence and police officials uh, and the National Security Advisor that this was the advice he was given. On the other hand, CESA says it did not violate the CESA's Act, but they were still very concerned about potential national security threats from it. Um, it's also not been as damaging to Pierre Polyev as it could have been. Uh, but you'll notice that he's been relatively quiet about the Emergencies Act inquiry. He was not out there uh, defending the rights of people to protest, as he had said he was doing so during the convoy, because he recognized there was a real political risk to him on this. So uh, I kind of think it was a bit of a fizzle. Both Justin Trudeau and Pierre Polyev survive it, um, depending on your pre-existing political proclivities. I suspect that it has underlined it, uh, but I don't think that this was the bombshell people thought it might be for either side. All right. Thanks for that. A busy one, Mercedes. We appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. Two Alberta children have died of influenza since the start of the flu season. And over the weekend, Alberta Health Services announced preparations for a surge in patients as they try to get ready and ease the stress on hospital staff. This morning, we're checking in with Dr. Cora Constantinescu. Oh, I knew I was going to say that wrong, doctor. Dr. Cora Constantinescu, who's a pediatric infectious disease specialist at the Alberta Children's Hospital. Good morning to you. Thanks so much for joining us, doctor. Appreciate it. Good morning. Okay, so uh, we're seeing a a real influx in in kids with respiratory illnesses. Is it just the flu? Are we still seeing COVID in kids? Is there more to it? 
Yeah, we are seeing very large volumes. Um, primarily, influenza is what has been driving a lot of the trips to the emergency department um, and the hospital and the ICU. In the last about two weeks, uh, we saw a significant increase in RSV as well. So now we're seeing that uh, peaking as well. Um, and this is all on the, and a few other respiratory viruses, COVID included, um, even though the two big players would be influenza and RSV right now. Um, and this is already on the background of, uh, we were already seeing a lot of, of circulating viruses and quite high um, admissions and hospitalizations even before this started. I want you to help me out here, uh, Doctor, because RSV is a term that we've heard quite a bit over the past several weeks, but can you dig in and give us a definition of RSV and and how does it represent in, in symptoms? Yeah, you're right. So uh, RSV, it has a, a long name. It's called a respiratory syncytial virus, and it is also a respiratory virus. So it affects the lungs and the respiratory tract. It's very common in children. So most kids would have already been infected by this virus by the time they're two. Um, now, it can also infect older children and is also a significant uh, source of infection and hospitalization in, in adults and especially older adults as well. It can really mimic, in terms of symptoms, the common cold, um, especially when it first presents, you know, a bit of runny nose or congestion, a dry cough, somewhat low-grade fever, so maybe 38, low 38 degrees, um, a sore throat, some sneezing headaches. But in severe cases, it can cause infection. It spreads to the lower part of our respiratory tract, down into the lungs, and into the very small airway passages called the bronchioles. And it causes something called bronchiolitis. And you can imagine that a smaller baby and a child would have a harder time when this virus has spread down to the lower respiratory tract. And those are the ones that wheeze, have a severe cough, uh, ongoing fever, but they also have really hard time breathing. So they come in with rapid breaths, um, and they you you look at their chest and you can see how hard their muscles are trying to to keep the lungs open and to breathe in. And those are the ones that are severely affected and need hospitalization. Doctor, you know we're hearing the numbers of flu vaccinations in young kids is very very low, and and the UCP is actually facing some criticism for not promoting vaccines to kids. Do you think the low numbers of vaccinations for flu is one of the issues? It's also contributing to the high numbers of young people at the children's hospital. Oh, absolutely! A lot of our kids out there right now are unprotected, and we're coming into this season after two low um, circulation virus seasons. So in the previous two years, because of the various public health measures, uh, we did not see a lot of influenza. And we know that immunity wanes with respiratory viruses. That's why people can get infected over and over with these viruses. So you have that combination of low immunity in the population plus low immunization rate so we didn't keep up the the immunity with vaccination in a large portion of our population so to me it is no surprise that we are seeing this really bad um huge there's a huge volume of infections and when you don't have immunity uh, to begin with and people are not immunized then you end up in hospitals 
Dr. Konstantinescu, I, I know that at the beginning of COVID, it was we did not have a vaccine. We do have these flu vaccines. Are, are you having any uh, feedback as to why kids have not got the flu vaccine? Is this just a case that we're, you know, kind of, uh, I guess, tired of vaccines? Are you hearing any reasons? You know, most parents who don't vaccinate their children against the flu are not anti-vax, you know, anti-vaccine uh, parents. Most of them, they've either forgotten or they haven't gotten the time to do it. Um, they felt their kids were always sick, so they didn't get a chance to get an appointment or they couldn't get an earlier appointment. This this um, flu season came so early and it's so ferocious that it kind of caught a lot of parents unaware. Um, and a lot of parents don't recognize what a serious disease this is in children. So those are the main things that drive these poor low vaccination rates in 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 um, in our children and I'm really hoping that things like this you know uh, media attention to this a chance for parents to know what we are seeing in hospitals and how bad this is and how these are healthy children who are presenting to the emergency department and end up hospitalized I'm hoping that it's going to motivate more parents to appreciate that you know you would not want to send your children in such a high circulating uh, influenza, respiratory virus, season unprotected. And doctor, it's a great reminder because with the overcrowding at the Alberta Children's Hospital, we're now hearing AHS is, is going to be bringing in a heated trailer to accommodate the surgeon patients used probably coming up in December to try and keep people warm. That's how many families, kids are expected to be showing up at the hospitals because of all these viruses that are flying around, right? Is, I mean, that, that just seems pretty crazy that's something happening in Alberta. Yeah, it's right here. <laughs> this is not somewhere else that this is happening. Our hospital is working incredibly hard at increasing capacity, both physical capacity, as you just pointed out, but also staff. Um, and and we're already seeing a lot of parents wait a long time. Uh, you know, I think we're doing a really incredible job at supporting parents and, and being there for the kids. But there are a lot of things that parents can do as well. Um, and also you have to remember, we're also seeing a lot of shortages. We're seeing shortages of um, ibuprofen and Tylenol and a lot of antibiotic shortages, too. So kids end up on bigger antibiotics than they normally would, for example, because of all this. So there are things parents can do. Um, You know, I'm a parent myself. I have three children. My kids are immunized, not just against these respiratory viruses like influenza and COVID, but also your other routine immunizations. Mm -hmm. We're seeing quite a bit of bacterial infections on top of these viruses, like pneumococcus, uh, for example. So make sure your children have their vaccinations, the routine vaccines, plus these respiratory virus vaccines. Stay home if you can, if they're sick. mask children as they're going as we're going through this really high wave of infection have the mask so you can have them as protected as they can be um so that kids can do the things we want them to do go to school and do their activities mm-hmm. and you know generally drive parents bananas at this <laughs> time of year <laughs> so true absolutely great points thanks for your time thanks for the information this morning we appreciate it thank you for having me Dr. Cora Constantinescu, a pediatric infectious disease specialist at the Alberta Children's Hospital. It's a heartwarming story about a family that has overcome incredible odds. Sophia Harani was four years old when she stumbled during a soccer practice and started throwing up. 
And when that persisted, she underwent an MRI and it revealed a massive tumor. It was later identified as a highly aggressive children's brain cancer. Joining us to talk about her daughter's journey on this Giving Tuesday is Dr. Shelley Bayana. Good morning to you, Shelley. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, Every parent's worst nightmare, obviously, to have your child diagnosed with cancer. Can you tell us a little bit about your daughter's journey and how Kids Cancer Care was there to help your family? Yeah, so it was an unexpected thing, as many times it is for parents in our situation. Um, We had no idea that this was the journey we were going to be facing. So obviously we were, you know, just sort of lost in the beginning and overwhelmed. Um, So during the first few months of treatment, you know, it was very intense, uh, mostly at the hospital and living there for months on end. Um, And then one of the child life specialists at the hospital reached out to us and said that if we were looking for support, um, and it, to be honest, initially it was for our uh, other kids because they support siblings as well. And they were going through the trauma of what had happened to their sister. And so they talked about sending the kids to camp where they could meet other siblings of kids who've had cancer. Um, and then eventually we began to notice that they came onto the ward to provide pizza nights. They, you know, we didn't realize kids who are going through um, stem cell transplants, they can't leave the ward at the hospital. And sometimes they are confined to their own rooms. So Kids Cancer Care does a pizza night where you can go into a special room where it's sanitized and the kids get to enjoy just a little bit of fun through the whole journey. So those were the initial steps that we had with Kids Cancer Care. And then the journey doesn't really end once you're done treatment. There's so much other um, treatments that have to go on even as an outpatient. Um, So the kids have really enjoyed being a part of Kids Cancer Care. This time of year, it always reminds me of the um, Polar Express that we did a couple of years in a row where all the kids through the cancer treatment get to go on the special train ride and um, and the camps have always been amazing for them in the summer. Shelly, you have such an interesting story in that you are a doctor and I think outside looking in, you think, well, the doctor would know everything there is to know about cancer, yeah. you know, a, a big picture, how it would impact the child. But until you're in it, not learning in a classroom or reading in a textbook, tell us about that experience that this becomes your life, even though you have the academics behind you, how, how was that dynamic hard for you or, or difficult? Um, it's difficult because when you're a physician, um, you know what you know about your area of specialty, whatever it might be. But unless you're a pediatric oncologist, this isn't our world. And so we really were at the other end of things where we were now the patient and the families of a patient. And I'm grateful to the physicians that we had who explained things to us in a manner that we needed. Um, and our greatest teachers actually were the other parents who've been through this journey. They're the ones who guided us. They're the ones who told us, for example, and again, we met a lot of them through Kids Cancer Care. You know, when your kid's nauseated, this is something that might help, for example. This is how you can make a smoothie that might feel more palatable when they're having, you know, this chemo. Or for example, this might be a special chair that can help when they're going through this kind of bathing process with a specific type of chemotherapy so or even tricks on how to take the band-aids off yeah. their, their skin. The basic things, right, and to, from small to big. How, how is Sophia now? I know your family's still dealing with some difficulties. Yeah. And, and what supports do you still get then? So as a result of the treatment, Sophia ended up with a lot of physical um, challenges and disabilities and also cognitive. So we still heavily rely on kids' cancer care. She um, has a tutor through kids' cancer that care that now is coming once a week. Um, and she still goes to their camp in the summertime. It's actually the only camp where she requires 
she requires an aide to be with her at all times. So they do provide an aid for kids who've got physical disabilities as a result of their cancer. Um, she enjoys their cooking classes. Um, a lot of this sport, she even goes to her, one of her favorite things is our peer program, which is like a physical therapy class that happens Monday night. Um, they do multi-sport and it sort of helps kids with cancer get back into physical activity after years of treatment. I want to just take it back a bit, something you'd mentioned about kids' cancer care, which I've experienced firsthand when I've been at Camp Kendall, for example, mm-hmm. in spending time around the organization and the volunteers that do such great work, is that whole family aspect, that has to be the icing on the cake with the siblings who are going through a tough time as well that otherwise would be left on the sidelines not feeling like they can take part in, in helping their siblings. It's really empowering for them. Absolutely. And many of the siblings take an active role in helping run the camp um, as they start to get older if they're interested. So our son has now started volunteering with the Teen Leadership Program. It's a program that teaches kids who are siblings or even involved in kids' cancer care as a patient themselves how to actually be a voice and a leader for this cause and for to be an advocate for cancer care. <clears throat> Thank you so much for, for sharing your story with us. I, I know it's it's hard to talk about these things, but really important on this Giving Tuesday as we talk about different organizations that can use time, can use money to help, you know, better be there for families like yours. Thank you for sharing your story this morning. Really appreciate your time. They've really changed our lives. And I just wanted to say that, you know, making a donation to this cause, I think we're 60% there right now. So, I mean, a, a donation to this cause is just... It's the most heartwarming thing anybody could do, and it's one of the most beautiful charities I've ever come across. So, um, yes, if everybody could help donate even a little bit, that would be amazing. Thank you so much. Our love to Sophia. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. That's Shelley Bayana, who is a doctor and a mother of a young cancer patient. For more information or to help out to donate today on Giving Tuesday or anytime, kidscancercare.ab.ca. Black Friday, Cyber Monday, both behind us. Did you find the perfect gift? Well, if you missed out, don't worry. Gadget guy Mike Yanni is here to talk about some of the hottest gifts this holiday season. And when we say hot, we mean hot, Mike. How are you? I am doing well. I'm inside. I am staying warm this morning. Good call. No complaints. No, good call for sure. Okay, while (laughs) you're warm, heat us up a bit with some of these great ideas you have. Yeah, I don't like the cold. I will be uh, honest about that. I do not enjoy the cold. When I worked in film for a couple of years, you know, working outdoors, you realize you cannot control the elements. Now it bundled up as much as possible and still felt that I'm not warm. So I turned to tech, and I'll tell you, all of these gadgets on the list, these are all Yoni approved. And I want to start with the heated jackets and vests. Have you guys tried these before? No, but I've seen them. So is this reality? Does it actually do something? Yeah, and you know what? We are seeing more of them for a reason because they work. So it's basically, it's almost like a heating blanket. You have a jacket, maybe it's a puffer or a vest, and they have the heating wires throughout it, and it's connected to a battery pack. You charge the battery pack, you turn it on, and of course those wires heat up. Now, if you put another layer on top of that, I am telling you, you are cozy warm. So this is ideal for if you know somebody who works outside in the winter, this is a game changer. Um, so, you know, some of the jackets, uh, you have to kind of look at the different models because some have wires in the chest, some have in the arms, some have in the lower back. You know, everyone's going to have a preference where they like that hot spot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I also strongly suggest get an extra chargeable battery because although they last four to ten hours, if you really crank that heat and only last four hours mm-hmm. and you're outside for an eight-hour shift, 
nice to have that second battery as backup. Well, Mike, our uh, Tony King walks in every day, and he wasn't talking about his body being cold, but it was his hands that were really cold. I remember those hot shots, you'd kind of crack them yeah. and put them in your mitts. They were pretty good, but technology has taken over, haven't they? hasn't it? Hey, th- those work. Those work, yeah. especially if you're out skiing. Those are fantastic, and they're still a go-to. However, if you are able to keep your hands in your pockets for a while, rechargeable hand warmers make a world of difference. I didn't believe this until I had a coworker that showed these to me. They're almost like a massage stone, and it fits in the palm of your hand. You charge them, and they last for about four, once again, four to ten hours. It is incredible how hot these get. So nice on the bare skin, but it also uh, warms up your pocket as well. So when you stick your hands in your pockets, they're nice and toasty, and they're cheap. You can get them for $30. Some of them go up to $80. The more you spend them, usually the longer they last. But these are incredible, especially if you can keep your hands toasty in your pockets. Okay, Mike, uh, we don't have a whole lot of time, but we've got a lot more hot things to talk about. So can you blow through these? We've got a heated steering wheel cover, a heated mug, and a heated toilet seat. Yes. Uh, Let's talk about the the, uh, steering wheel covers for a second because I think it should be law. All vehicles should have heated steering wheels. If you've ever tried one, you know the difference it can make. And you can buy these for about $50. You can add it on to your vehicle. So great gift there. Uh, The Ember heated mug. I love this. I'm in meetings all day. I warm up my coffee five to six times because then have a chance to finish it uh this is an app connected uh heated mug and so you know with your app you can say exactly the temperature you want and it'll keep it there for hours so i love that and yes last but not least and let's not say this is the bottom of our list (laughs) but i swear there's a secret society of bidet users in our city because my wife and i got one a year ago and when we joke that we have it with somebody they're like yeah, we've had one for years. Are you serious? You didn't know about this? Really? Never have a cold toilet seat again. And not only that, heated water, heated air to dry you off. I'm telling you, I know people that will not go to the washroom in public because they have these at home, and I see why. Game changer. The nice thing is you don't have to change your entire toilet out. You just swap out the toilet seat itself, and I'm telling you. You're never going back. And you'll save money, Andrew, on toilet paper. Well, you know me. Hey, but just before we let you go, can you give us the brand so we can search? I want to see what this looks like. What, what kind of a brand do we search for on Google, for example? We, we bought a Toto, uh, T-O-T-O, T-O-T-O. Uh, and it's more of a higher-end one, but they can range from about $800 all the way up to, I mean, they go expensive. They can go up to or close to $3,000. So kind of find your, your middle ground there. But uh, we went with the Toto and love it. Andy, that's at the top of my Christmas list now. <laughs> Thanks, Mike Yanni. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks for heating us up. Mike Yanni is the gadget guy at gadget underscore guy on Twitter. Gadget guy Mike on Insta. He's also got a great YouTube uh, channel so you can see some of the videos where he, where he tests the products. Absolutely you can.